You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. I hope you had a restful and love-filled Thanksgiving. Thank you for joining me for tonight's teaching. Kind of a Wednesday night Bible study theme. Maybe we could call it an old school uh, Wednesday night Bible study. Remember when that used to be a thing? I do. Those were fun times. Um, we're continuing our conversation in the book of Amos. And Amos, uh, as we said last week, is a very popular book that is uh, frequently used and cited by social justice oriented Christians. And what we're doing in this short teaching series, it'll probably end up being three parts uh, because there's sort of three major movements to the book. We're trying to do two things. We want to model for you how to interpret a prophetic book of the Bible, as well as give you insight into the book of Amos itself. And along the way, we hope to uh, give some consideration to how the book is used by social justice Christians and highlight some places where, you know, we want to offer a word of caution. Um, I want to introduce my podcast partner tonight, the lovely and gracious. Hi. Monique Dusan. Hello, hello. You caught me on my computer. Uh, that's all right. You're just uh, just looking up Amos. Just looking up some things there. Yes. But you can't look it up in Greek because that won't work. That uh, is true, too. <laughs> that's true. So last week, uh, I laid some groundwork on the background of the book of Amos. And uh, we had Monique jump in and uh, join the second half of the conversation. Tonight, we've got her here from the beginning. We did the first couple of chapters last week. And... Uh, we're going to pick it right up there in chapter three in just a minute. But I do want to invite you to add your voice to the conversation tonight. You can engage with us on the chat box on YouTube. You can ask some clarifying questions. Um, last week, we looked up something in real time. Yeah. We just sat here and looked it up. Right you know the lesson the of that? It was that you can do this too. If you're at home, you also can do this. And to me, I was so excited when um, I don't remember who it was who asked the question. I think it was Andre. Um yeah, maybe. But it was um, it was about like the word righteousness or yeah. justice in the Greek. And I just Hebrew. thought, yeah, Hebrew, yeah, it is seminary, 27 minutes, y'all. Um, I thought that that was such a perfect opportunity to show people that, you know, we actually have to do the work. We have to get in and look in a Bible dictionary or go to, you know, a resource online or something like that. But we have to do the work. Yeah. And it's not, you know, it's not just about sitting down and listening to someone else. It's really about understanding how to dig into the word yeah. so that you are not led astray by every wind of doctrine. Yeah. And you, sometimes you got to do got to do some homework and so um so we do want to invite you to jump in on the youtube chat you can um join there and talk to us ask some clarifying questions i'm on facebook so at the center for biblical unity very good uh and we will take periodic breaks throughout the discussion and read through some of those comments and maybe respond to the ones that are relevant uh be sure as you're watching the live stream give it a thumbs up share subscribe and hit that notifications bell and um don't have too many people watching but that's not terribly surprising considering how much we're being shadow banned right now on social media if you're new to uh, my channel this is uh, the theology mom channel and uh, i've dedicated this channel to proclaiming the historic christian faith as it was taught and preserved by the ancient church and in the scriptures and explore um how we can respond to what's happening in our culture through the lens of the historic Christian worldview. And 
Uh, this is not the channel where we do magic tricks with the Bible to make it fit what our culture is telling us to do. Uh, we look to the scriptures first to shape our thoughts, our feelings, our opinions. And then we use the early history of the church, the first 300 years, as sort of a check or a, a guardrail to help keep us from wandering from the true faith. So that is what we are up to. All right. Last time we looked at chapters one of two, one and two of Amos, uh, kind of the prophecies of Amos against the surrounding nations. So this is kind of a crude graphic that I just grabbed at the last minute. So it's not the best quality, but you could see it. The, the first kind of movement that we did last time was under that big banner of judgment. And he was uh, Amos was pronouncing all the judgments against the surrounding nations and then ultimately around God's people for Judah and Israel. So what we're going to cover tonight is kind of this second major movement of the reasons uh, for the judgment. And is think of it almost as a law court. And it's God is taking his people to court. He's going to start marshalling the evidence. And then next week we will see those results. So that's kind of the big picture of where we are going uh, tonight. So we're going to look at chapters three to six tonight in short order. And um, so chapter three, we're going to start off with that. And, you know, I should probably say a quick word here. Like, here's another tip for interpreting the Bible. And I'm sure you've been learning this in your hermeneutics class is the importance of reading in big chunks mm -hmm. and reading them over and over again. Like the book of Amos, I think is about nine chapters. It's not terribly long, but you really should take the time to read it over and over again so that you can identify the key movements of a book. Mm -hmm. That's very important to do your own due diligence. And so before you look at a verse, you've got to understand, you got to pull the camera back and look at the wide shot and figure out, okay, what's happening here? Yeah. And then zoom back in to, all right, now what is this first saying? So that's a really important pro tip that if you're going to interpret scripture, you've got to know the major movements of the book. So like, for example, in the book of Ephesians, I've read Ephesians so many times that I can read a, a verse and go backward and forward. And I know the context. I know what the major movements are of the book. When you get to a book like Amos, might be less familiar to you, but you've got to take the time to sit down and read through it a few times. So good pro tip. Yeah. To identify the movement. So let's just go to chapter three here. We'll just jump right in. We don't really have a plan. We're just going to read, <laughs> read some scriptures and talk about them. So feel free to um, jump into the conversation as, as we go here. So what we see in Amos chapter three is right off the bat, you see what I want you to notice is these words, hear this word, people of Israel, the word of the Lord has spoken against you. So we know who it's to, mm -hmm. it's to the Northern kingdom, it's the people of Israel and who it's from is the Lord speaking. And it's against the family that I brought up out of Egypt. I have chosen you out of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your sins. Now, one of the things we said last week is you have to read Amos through the lens of the law. So when it says, I will punish you for all your sins, like what's that language there? What does that remind you of in verse two? 
I have chosen you out of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you. What's the connection between those two ideas? Do you know? I don't because what immediately comes to my mind is something from the New Testament for you. Okay. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. But mm. that is that is looking at, I, I feel like how Israel was potentially like a type of shadow of what Christians are today of God's chosen people. But that isn't that's a really good doing in- anything for, for Amos. But, but that's a really good intuition. That's a very good intuition. So let me break this down for you a little bit, because this is a key part of interpreting a prophetic book. So notice this language here of I brought you up out of Egypt and I have chosen you from all the families of the earth. That is supposed to hearken the reader back to the covenant. One of the key features of a co- of covenant language is when God says like who I am, who you are, and a brief history of our relationship. So what you often see in the law is I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. And now I'm making this covenant with you. So this is highly covenantal language of we have an agreement here. I'm the king. You're the servant. Mm -hmm. Okay. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. So last week we talked a little bit about Deuteronomy 28 and the, do you remember what that section is? Deuteronomy 28? The blessings and the curses. That's right. The blessings and the curses. You you have to understand that framework Mm -hmm. in order to understand the prophets. So what he's saying is, I'm the king. Here's our history. I brought you up out of Egypt. Here's who you are. You were my chosen people. We had this special family relationship, but you've broken our agreement. And so now I'm going to bring the curses on you. Okay. So that's what's going on here. So this kind of marks a transition to set up for what's going to happen now. Because remember, he's taking them to court. So let's scroll down to verse nine in this next chunk. So remember, we talked last week about the importance of geography. The geography is a big part of Amos. Proclaim to the fortresses at Ashdod and the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who store up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. So Samaria in verse nine is a short way of talking about the entire Northern kingdom. Can we go to the map? So you see up here where it says Samaria, and it says that was the capital. So it'd be like Washington DC being a representation for our whole country. It was the capital. It was the power center. It was where the Kings, the Kings were. And so God's saying, here's, Here's what I have against you. You've looted. You've plundered. He's going to go through a whole bunch of sins. All right, let's go back to Amos here. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. So here's the punishments. Remember, last week, one of our curses that we read about in Deuteronomy 28 was that they would get defeated by their enemies. Mm -hmm. Here's exactly what happens. An enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, plunder your fortresses. If we were to put this in Americans terms, we would say your country's going to get overrun by Al Qaeda. Mm-hmm. 
You know, they're going to take over Washington, D.C. They're going to burn down the White House. They're going to take over the Pentagon. They're going to execute your soldiers on live television. I mean, imagine how devastating that would be Mm -hmm. um, to our country. It would destabilize our country. And God's saying, this is the judgment that I'm going to bring against you. This is what the Lord says as a shepherd rescues the lion's mouth, only two leg bones or a piece of an ear. This is such a vivid picture. So the Israelites living in Samaria, be, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued with only the head of a bed and a piece of fabric from a couch. Okay, what do you think he's saying there? They're not going to come away with much. No. What, what is he saying? This is a very vivid, and the prophets do this a lot. There's a lot of word pictures. What do you think he's saying there? Hmm. So if a shepherd is trying to rescue his sheep from a lion, what's going to be left? Nothing. <laughs> Pretty much nothing, right? If a shepherd tries to rescue his sheep from me, as <laughs> a woman money. who loves lamb. Yes. No. So, I mean, that's what I'm saying. There won't be much left. Like what, what, um, what will be left for them or what they'll be able to take away will be very little. Yeah. So he's, he's setting up, he's saying, you know, judgment is coming. Okay. Let's keep reading here. Hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob. Now, this is very important. People should probably circle this. Who are we talking to? Who was our audience back in verse one? Do you remember? Go it was scroll the back. Israelites. All right. Now, who's our audience in verse 13? It is the descendants of Jacob. So where, where did we switch our focus to? The southern kingdom? Yeah. We just switched to the southern kingdom. So we it's like in a movie shot, we had the foreground in focus. Okay. We just changed our focus and now we've got the background in focus. So God's sending a message now mm-hmm. to, to Judah. And what does he say? On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. Now, do you remember what does Bethel stand for? Why is Bethel important? Well, Bethel was a house of worship mm-hmm. and under Jeroboam, he set up worship centers because yep. he didn't want his people going to the southern kingdom to to worship. Right. So it's a symbol of a false worship center. Mm-hmm. It was an alternative to the real way to worship. The, the real way to worship. All right, let's go back. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The house is adorned. This is important with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished. Who's he talking to there, do you think? Verse 15. I will tear down the summer house and the winter house. Houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed. Mansions will be demolished. What does that sound like? Who, Who has ivory? What kind of people have ivory? Rich people. Rich people. Yes. Yeah, this is, he's saying, I'm going to tear down your, your fake worship centers. I'm going to destroy all your wealth. Now, remember, what we, one of the things we said last week was that Amos comes along at a time of great prosperity. Mm-hmm. They don't have a lot of enemies. But God is telling them, because of your sin, you're going to be overrun. So it'd be like 
in, in American history during a time of great security and God saying, because your sin is so great, I'm going to tear down the White House. Yeah. Now, I think it's important to note, too, though, don't conflate no. the, the issue that being no. wealthy is a sin. No. You know, and I, I think that that can that can get it thrown in there, too. It's yeah. not that they not it's not that them having wealth was the sin. It was right. that they were sinful and they weren't responsible with their wealth. They weren't responsible with their neighbor. They weren't responsible with worship and the things that God had called them to. And because of that, they were going to be overrun. These were rich people who were sinful and were going to be overrun the same way that you can have a poor person who is sinful and the judgment of God come upon them. I think it's such a good point because I have heard social justice oriented Christians isolate this verse and say, see, God is against the rich. Yeah. And that's how they use it. But in the context, that's why I was real, really laborious in going through the context of, hey, what's in view here? Mm -hmm. It's covenant violations. You have engaged in a habitual pattern of behavior that goes against the covenant. So now here are the curses that are coming upon you. Yes, because we live in covenant relationship. And when we yep. break the covenant, then there are the stipulations that come along with a broken covenant, yep. rich or poor. Exactly. The consequences will come. Okay. Is there any comments that we need to get to? Covenant. Alicia is asking, a she just says the word covenant. So I'm wondering if maybe she doesn't know what the word covenant means. We could talk about that a little bit. I honestly wonder if um, when you went back and said, do you know what's being talked about here? Because the word covenant is here too. Um, it was an answer to, like that was the answer. It was, the answer is the covenant. Got it. Remember? Okay. So just in case that... Because then Caroline that, was like, um, I got it right. Go ahead, Caroline. <laughs> go ahead. So, you know, it'd See, probably be yeah. good just to, just to let people know, like, what is a covenant? Uh, you want to take a crack at try to give that a little definition covenant is a contract basically between two parties and it lays out the stipulations of the contract so this is who i am this is what i do this is who you are and this is what you do and this is what happens when these things go awry yeah so if you don't do this this is what happens if i don't do this this is what happens um but yeah that's that's a covenant it's a contract yeah and there's several covenants can you remember any of them in scripture vassal suzerain vassal treaty which is what um, the mosaic covenant is and suzerain is a five dollar word for a king mm -hmm. and a vassal is his servant, servant. yeah mm -hmm. there's the davidic covenant the mosaic covenant um the abrahamic covenant the new testament covenant that's right the new covenant the there is some would say the adamic covenant yeah the, that's, that's always a little that's in, always in, a question know, a little mark. Flex, was, you was know that a, a true covenant or not but yeah, yeah that's good noahic covenant is mm -hmm. another one uh, we talked about last week. So very good. So yeah, that's what a covenant is. Hey, seminary. So in what we're talking about here in Amos is mostly what's in view is, is the Mosaic covenant. And so we have to understand that in order to understand Amos, we can't unhitch mm -hmm. the Mosaic covenant from Amos because otherwise we don't know, well, why is Amos trying to enforce a covenant? Oh, we have to go back yeah. to Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy to really understand all that. Okay, let's go on to chapter four. We're going to scroll down to verses 
verse starting at verse four. We can't go through everything or the podcast would be 45 hours. So I just kind of picked some highlights here. So now here it says, um, go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Now, what is the sin? Now, we just said, what is the symbolic meaning of Bethel? Okay, that's an alternative worship center. Gilgal is another um, prominent city in the in the north. So what is this sin? Go to there, go to Bethel and sin. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn love and bread as a thank offering. Brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites. Okay, we're talking to the northern kingdom. For this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. Okay, so context. Context is our friend. It's not a condemnation for being rich. What is the condemnation? It's that they are engaging in false worship. But what I often hear social justice people do with these verses is say, see, we can just throw away the old covenant. It doesn't pertain to us. God doesn't even like sacrifices. See, these these things are, he, do, he doesn't even want us to bring sacrifices. He doesn't care about them. But that's not what's being said. What is the symbolic meaning of Bethel? What is the context? Mm-hmm. It's not, the problem is not the sacrifices per se. The problem is that they were false sacrifices, false festivals, false. They just made honor. it up. You they, can just you, make up. Let me, let me just, you know, go over here to, to the little porta potty and go to church. That's no, but I mean, essentially that's what it's like before the Lord. It's yeah. like, he gives, he gives us very clear instructions on how to worship him. And we can't just desecrate what he's given us by creating something that we think is easier, better, more right, whatever. Yeah. Like we can't do that. And so I think that, that could be a very hard description to be like, well, the Lord gave us a temple and we went to a porta potty but it is very similar in the in the idea that it is completely unholy it is completely um out of out of the parameters of holiness for us as as the subjects to think that i now can 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 set up um a a worship site or a temple and just kind of do do my own my own worship when God yeah. has been so clear in in how we are to worship and that that the holiness of his temple is not something that can be replicated. Yeah. So someone's asking a uh, Candace is asking a great question on YouTube and the law wasn't love and bread not to be offered. That's a great question, Candace. Um, and this highlights another really important study tip. Well, we mentioned last week, but you're demonstrating it really well, which is ask questions, lots and lots of questions. So what you could do is take that question and then research it and to see like, hey, maybe I can get a deeper insight here into the text about what's going on. You know, maybe they were only supposed to offer unleavened bread, Mm -hmm. but why are they bringing leavened bread? Mm -hmm. Is that a problem? Is that contradict the law? Now, there weren't there were more sacrifices than simply animal sacrifices. There were also grain offerings. So that's a great opportunity to um, research that more. Okay, let's go back to um, Amos chapter four here. Keep reading. All right, scroll down a little bit. Now, now we're starting to get into more of the consequences and the punishments. 
God says, I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me. So these are going right back to Deuteronomy 28 mm-hmm. that we said last week. One of the consequences, if you break God's law consistently and habitually, he will allow your food supply. He will allow famine to come in. And then this is exactly what happens here. He also um, withheld rain. Um, and that's another thing that comes right out of the, the, the Deuteronomy 28. And if you disregard the law, people staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me. So here the Lord is saying, I've given you all these warnings. Mm-hmm. Bad things have been happening, but you're not paying attention. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig trees and your olive trees. And yet you have not returned to me. So God is now marshalling his evidence. They're in a court of Mm -hmm. law. He's saying there was this and this and this. And yet you did not return to me. Verse 10, I sent plagues among you as I did in Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword. I sent you out to war and you got defeated. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. There were so many dead bodies that it stunk, mm-hmm. you know, and yet you have not returned to me. Yeah. Um, I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning sni- stick snatched from the fire. And yet you have not returned. You have not returned to me. This is what I will do to you, Israel. So He's saying, I've warned you. I, I sent all the consequences. Now we're going to go toward more severe consequences. Uh, this is what I'm going to do. Prepare. How would you like this verse? How would you like God to say this? Prepare to meet your God. Hmm. So it's like, that's it. You're going to go to judgment. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna get the, the final punishments. He who forms the mountains and creates the wind and reveals his thoughts to mankind who turns dawn to darkness and treads the heights of the earth. The Lord almighty is his name. So now you're just, you're going to go before the judge. You're, you're, you sh- you, this is your day in court and he's going to hand down the sentence. This is a pretty bleak picture for Israel. Okay. Any comments on Facebook that we need to go to that you see? Okay. Oh, that's a good question. Kathleen, uh, ESV says iniquities instead of sins. Do they mean the same thing or is there a distinction between them? I actually think those are two slightly different words, but I would have to look that up in the Hebrew, but that wouldn't be, that's a great question. Mm -hmm. Again, you're, you guys are getting it. You're starting to model how to do Bible study. You've Mm -hmm. got to get curious and inquisitive, start asking questions. Now in your hermeneutics class, how many questions did your prof make you ask about a passage? at least 20 it felt like yeah something like that we and we we did different styles of questions so there were literary questions historic questions cultural questions and one more thing sorry dr cash um theological maybe or application application questions yes and so we we would list out these different categories and then um like what is in the application section what is this applicable to in my life today like how can i apply this um but there would be just different questions that or what what questions come up in the text as i'm reading just natural questions yeah so here's an, another tip you can do with young people is 
as you have them first read the passage out loud together as a group and then have them ask questions, start asking questions mm-hmm. of the text, write them on the board, mm-hmm. just any question they think of. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't necessarily categorize them. I just write them all down yeah. or I'll have my own categories on the board and then I'll categorize them for them. So, you know, if it's a cultural question, we put it over here. If it's an application question, we might put it over in this column, theological question. But then what I would do is I would tell the students, okay, I want you to pick two questions and I want you to go research the questions, have them get into small groups Mm -hmm. for about 15 minutes or so. They can break up into small groups and then they try to research the answers to their questions and then they come back and they teach the group. What did you find out as an answer yeah. to this question? That's a, I've done that many times with young people. It's a great way to help them feel more empowered. They're not dependent on the pastor, youth pastor, or even their parents. They start to know, oh, I can do this. Mm-hmm. I can go look something up. Yeah. And so that's just like a little little idea for how you can really do this in real time with young people or in your family Bible study, <laughs> family devotions. So, all right, um, let's go on to chapter five. I'm going to keep cooking here. So now we're going to have a lament. Now, laments are all over social justice right now. Yes. So another way to think about a lament here is it's like a, um, a funeral dirge. God is going to pronounce Israel's funeral. He's going to to um, give this poetic uh, lament over Israel. And um, fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Now, there's a lot of marriage mm-hmm. um, imagery of, between God and his people. And so he's saying, you know, like, we're getting a divorce, basically. And yeah. we're not going to get back together ever. And uh, no one will be there to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. So it's going to go into this. And so this is really God's pronouncement of the ruin of Israel that's coming and the judgment that is coming to them. So let's look at verses four to six here. This is once I thought was particularly interesting. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Now, where is What is this? Where are these two cities again? Do not seek Bethel. Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal, mm-hmm. another prominent city in the north. Do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile. Bethel will be reduced to nothing. So he's saying, you know, there's there's like this sliver of hope. Seek me mm-hmm. <laughs> and live, but stop going and trying to find refuge in these places. The, these places are not going to help you. Seek the Lord and live or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire and it will devour them and Bethel will have no one to quench it. Now, it's interesting, the, the wording there of the tribes of Joseph, because Joseph doesn't actually have a tribe. He doesn't have land. All his brothers had land, but he didn't. But his children did. Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's children mm-hmm. and they received land. So that's what it's saying. And, and those were tribes in the north. Okay, let's go back. Those, this is interesting. 
Those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. So this is part of their sin is that they have distorted God's justice. Yeah. It's not their only sin, though. We, we've seen many sins. But justice is one of them. Mm -hmm. But this is a verse, too, that social justice-oriented Christians will say, see, this is their problem. They neglected justice. Well, and, and I think that when many people who oppose social justice are talking about, you know, they, they distorted justice, they're talking about something that's completely different than justice as defined in the law. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit, is um, when we're talking about what justice is in the law, it's about... A big component of that is about treating people with equality. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have these rules for the rich and these rules for the poor. These rules for the black, these rules for the white. Yeah, we, we treat citizens and foreigners with the same rules. The poor and the rich with the same rules. The widows, the orphans, and the king all should fall under the same rules. That's God's system of justice, his standard of justice according to the law. Um, but that's very different than what we hear many social justice people talking about today mm -hmm. in their definition of justice. Um, what would you say is kind of more of the standards of justice today? Well, I think speaking up for whoever is defined as marginalized okay. would be one standard of justice, making sure that everyone has the same amounts of things, uh, um, more same of, amount of income. Yeah. More of an equitable distribution of, of things like wealth and property. Um, yeah, I think the I think those are the two highlights that I see predominantly in culture. So the redistribution of wealth, getting rid of the hegemony, the, the power structures and things like that. And then, um, equity. Yeah. So that's why we're always emphasizing the importance of definitions. Mm -hmm. Very important. Okay, let's go back. Uh, let's go down to verse 10 here. Um, those who, who hate the one who upholds justice, there are those who hate the one who holds up, upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. This is a very important idea because this is another critical component of God's justice is truth telling in a law, a law court mm -hmm. that there, the way that you establish the truth of something, somebody's guilt or innocence is through the, the testimony of two or three witnesses. No one can be put to death on the testimony of just one witness. Mm -hmm. And so telling the truth in a law court is vital and so that is how we uphold justice according to God's law. But he's saying those who hate justice detest the one who tells the truth. Yeah. You know what I think is interesting is as we, th we talk about justice and, um, and like the law and things like that, and how justice is in equal weights and measures and all of that, justice on the social level, I would say just, I, I would say social justice is only justice. Social justice is only social because it involves people, but, um, it social justice itself 
flows out of our covenant relationship to one another. So it flows out of our personal righteousness. It's not that it's very different. Mm -hmm. Like I would be treating the way I treat someone should be just. Is that, does that make sense? Is that correct? Yeah. Like it's the way that I am participating with someone out of personal righteousness leads directly into that, that realm of justice that we're talking about. So I'm not going to cheat someone. I'm not going to steal from them. And in a court of law, that stealing could be looking like stealing, um, you know, a, a vote away from them or stealing a, a decision away from them. We act in personal righteousness. And so I feel like this goes into, you know, when we talk about justice and the law, we can't do that outside of really looking at how we participate with one another through our own personal righteousness. Yeah, that's so important because there are two Hebrew words for justice. And and one of them does seem to more focus on that personal righteousness element of how do I treat my neighbor? How do I treat them in my everyday life? And by your neighbor, I also mean your family members. Mm-hmm. Like, am I treating my family members, you know, in a way that is in accordance with God's standards? Um, but then if people become corrupt, then there's the opportunity to go get your case heard, to have a judge who will look at the evidence and render a verdict. And this is how God has set up things up. He's put sinful humans in the position of being a judge. But this is why judges need to be righteous. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of verses in the law about corrupt judges. The reason for that is that if you have a judge who takes a bribe from a rich person to slant a decision a certain way, that disadvantages the poor person and they're not having their evidence weighed impartially. It's not that God is on the side of only the poor. It's that he's on the side of whatever side is not getting their evidence heard impartially. And so the the rich can more easily bribe judges, but that's why it's so important that we have rulers and judges who are so righteous, they're unbribable. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't buy them. Because rich and poor should both have the opportunity to have their evidence impartially weighed. That is God's justice. God's justice is not about advantaging the poor over the rich. It's about being on the side of people who are not getting their cases properly heard. Yeah, that's that's a big issue. I did a whole podcast about that a couple months ago. Oh, okay. The ESV says on verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate. How does that compare to the translation you're reading? Uh, the ESV is probably more literal. What the NIV is doing is, if we can go back to the NIV for a second, I can show you what's happening there. Um, those who were at the gate were the judges. That's a way of saying going to court. You would go to the gate. And that's where the judge would be. And you could have them hear your evidence. What the NIV is doing is just explaining rather than translating. Hmm. And so it's saying in court. But what it's talking about is, yes, the ESV is probably more literal in saying go to the gate. But that's a that's their way of saying go to court because mm-hmm. that's where you would find the judge hmm. that he would be at the gate. Our biblical equality and equity 
definitions different than current social justice definitions? That is a very good question. That is a good question. That's something that we're kind of still trying to understand and and think through. Um, I think I'm, I'm still thinking through the the equity yeah. portion and and you know what what that looks like um, because I don't I honestly don't know that I believe that everything should be equitable. I don't I don't see equity in scripture that you know that everything needs to be the same. Everything needs to be distributed equally. And and things like that, like or or no, no, because that's kind of the social justice definition of equity is kind of equal outcomes. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't seem doesn't take into account laziness. (laughs) It doesn't seem to comport with scripture, which is based on principles like sowing and reaping Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, And there's no prohibition against being rich. We see in scripture there's righteous rich people. And unrighteous rich people, but there's also righteous poor people and unrighteous poor people. Mm -hmm. The issue is the righteousness. Yeah. How do you live in your station and condition? Mm -hmm. We don't see this, this injunction to equalize all incomes in scripture. I think, I think a lot of it has to do with definitions too. You know, do I believe that men and women are equal? Sure, I do. But does that... Now you have to get into the more nuanced pieces of, well, how are you, what are you saying with equal? Um, Do I believe that men and women, you know, stand before God in the same way that he loves us? He isn't holding um, my brother to a higher standard than he's holding me because I'm the female. I don't believe that. I think that he loves us the same. Um, But what you'll see more in the social justice narrative is that men and women are equal. And that means that they should be doing everything the exact same way all the time. And I don't know that I believe that anymore anymore. Yeah. You know, like I, I just, I don't, I think the Lord has really kind of shown me some things. I've had some conversations with people. I wouldn't say that I like, I wouldn't go down the road of egalitarian versus complementarian or things like that. But I do believe that we have very specific roles as women and we, and men have very specific roles. Does that mean that we're unequal? No, it just means that we've been given different roles, right? But within society and the social justice movement, it would say, well, we are completely equal. And because we're completely equal, we, we should have completely equal pay. Well, complete access to all stations, jobs, roles, everything. And it doesn't matter if you took 10 years off to raise your family and, you know, this person didn't, it should still just be equal. Yeah. You want to wear high heels? Everybody can wear high heels because we're all equal. Um, it There's, and I mean, men, women alike, like there's just, there's no boundary to to equality it everything just now has to be flat line and i don't see that in scripture and yet there is this sense in which we're all equal in the sense that we all have the same salvation mm-hmm. you know we also have the and, same salvation we all need to go through the same sanctification processes and it might look different per person but yeah. it, we all need to go through it we all um you know stand before a god on on our day yeah because god's righteous standards are without partiality. Mm -hmm. He judges all of us according to the same standards. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, there is equality, but our reward in heaven might be different, might be different, might be more based on sowing and reaping and, you know, might be unequal Mm -hmm. in that sense. So 
the whole question of equality, equity is is pretty nuanced. And you got to figure it, out, like, what are we talking about? And how are you defining the things yeah. that you're talking about? Yeah. You know, equity, especially, how are you defining what you're talking about? And what do you, you know, what are, what are the, the scriptures that you're upholding for, for your position? But okay, yeah. let's go back to chapter five. I got one more verse I want to look at here in verse 12. I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. They, there are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So those what I was talking about earlier in the, in the context here is about um, the importance of what you call personal righteousness and how important it is that judges don't take bribes. That would violate God's standard of justice. And yet that seems to have been a problem here in the Northern kingdom. So when he says in verse 15, hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Um, the issue here is, well, what is evil? What is good? It's well, it's right there in the context. He's just told us it's all of these broken covenant laws. It's taking bribes. It's treating people with, with different standards, different weights and measures. All of these things are violations of God's justice. Okay. Let's go on to chapter six. Now we're getting to the next kind of phase which is the reprimand of the nation. So woe to you who are complacent in Zion and to those of you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. So again, he's, he's emphasizing speaking of the North Mount Samaria, but they're complacent. Everything seems like it's okay. Verse two, he mentions these specific places in other nations, Philistia, Gath and Philistia. He's saying, my judgment came on these nations. Are you, are they better off than your kingdoms? Is your land larger than, than theirs? You put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. Now look at this verse. You lie on beds adorned in ivory and lounge on your couches. You d dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. You strum on your harps like David. You improvise musical instruments. You drink wine, use the finest lotion. Hey, I'm loving all this. I'm like that lamb and fatty calves. And yes. lotion. And all, lotion. All things that Monique loves a lot. Yes, yes. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Mm -hmm. You don't grieve over your sins. And what are the sins goes directly back to the law. Therefore you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. And that is the danger of wealth mm -hmm. is that it can prosperity can lull us into thinking everything's okay. Yeah. I'm okay. Look at all I have. Look at all my wealth. We have a uh, question on Facebook. Yeah. And it is Alicia. Um, 
would it be fair to say that God would hate injustice in the courts if it were to occur against an innocent person, no matter the social status or income? Yes. 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 He He's not, he's, again, you know, wealth isn't the issue. You know, if, if you go to a court and you have a judge who may have a, a heart for people who are in poverty or for the poor, and he alters every judgment in favor of the poor, there's an injustice against the rich. Because it says in scripture, you shall not favor, favor the rich or the poor. So equal weights and measures, um, not showing partiality. These are all different ways that the law is talking about the same mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. And God is not partial. Mm-hmm. And, and he, weigh, he uses the same weights and measures yeah. to judge us all. And the same thing would be said if you go to a court and you have a judge who favors minorities. That's an injustice against anyone who is not a minority, you know? So again, it, it isn't, it isn't, um, that injustice only happens to the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. I think God puts very strict stipulations and words in scripture to protect those classes of people because it is easier for them to fall pray to, you know, injustice or fall prey to, to an unequal system. But the heart of the matter is that he doesn't want anyone treated that way. Yeah. Okay. We've got a few more verses here in chapter six to get through. Sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob to test his fortresses. I will deliver the city and everything in it. Now listen to this. This is crazy. If 10 people are left in the house, they too will die. And if the relative who comes to carry the bodies out of the house to burn them asks, who might, who asks anyone who might be hiding there? Is anyone else with you? And he says, no, then he will have to say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. So the picture here is all these people die in the house. Somebody comes in to bury them and says, I wonder if there's anybody else in here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he says, don't mention the Lord. <laughs> you know, that's how corrupt it is. Even in that much distress, we're not going to call out on the Lord. For the Lord has given the command and he will smash the great house into pieces and small houses into bits. Whew, this is a bleak picture. Let's scroll down to verse 14 here. For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that they that will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the Valley of Arabah. So they're going to, they're going to go away. They're going to leave their land. That is what is on the horizon for them. So this is God's case. This is the evidence that he is marshalling against Israel for why they are going to um, go into captivity eventually by the Assyrians, but really disappear from history. Yeah. Um, they're, they're not gonna, they're not going to be restored to their land. So, so somebody private messaged us on Facebook and I just want to make a a quick comment about the difference between a, a covenant and a treaty, um, or a contract. Um, these are words that, you know, seem sort of synonymous. This person was taking issue with using the word con contract instead of covenant. I, I understand, but I think that covenant is more like the biblical word. It's a little bit different than what we look at today as a contract, but it's similar enough that 
I think it gives people helps to build a bridge to the modern context. If you, will. I'm the lay person so, in this group, but I'm just the ordinary. Yeah, that's no, it's all good. And I think that what's important to understand is that there's different kinds of of uh, covenants in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, like the Abrahamic covenant is interesting because Abraham's job is basically just to trust and obey. Mm-hmm. Like there's not a lot beyond that. Trust and obey. God tells him to to leave Haran. He leaves Haran. That's the obedience part. Um, it says in the New Testament that he he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's that's the trusting part. Um, so in that situation, God swears by himself and he is both the, the covenant like guarantor and 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 promiser and everything is on God. Abraham's only role is to trust and obey. When we get to the Mosaic covenant, it's much more of like a suzerain vassal treaty, like we said before of of a, a king and a, a vassal. Um, there's history given, there's promises made, and then there's stipulations. Here's what you must do. And then there's the threat of curses and the promise of blessings um, if everybody abides by their part of it. So covenants is, a, is an interesting thing in scripture, but I do want to encourage you, if you want to dig into these matters deeper, go get the book. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Doug Stewart. And it's a very accessible book. There's a whole chapter in there on how to interpret the prophets that'll go like deeper and build on the principles that we've done here in our, our study. Um, there's a whole chapter on how to interpret the law and more about suzerain vassal treaties and what that is. It's a great book. It'll give you a lot of tips on how to interpret the Bible and Probably one of the most um, pivotal and hist- uh, important books I've ever read in my life. Uh, I read it when I was probably like 24 and it was so helpful to me. So yeah, so if you want to dig deeper, go read How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Okay, we're going to put a bookmark in it right there. And we will come back next week with part three. Hopefully that'll be the end as we work our way through the rest of the book. In the meantime, I want to encourage you again, read through the book of Amos. Mm-hmm. You know, try to do that this week. Maybe read through it a couple times. Also, on our sh- podcast on Saturday, we are going to be talking about how to understand the different um, Bible translations and how to choose a Bible translation. Like, you know, w- tonight we saw the NIV says this, but then the ESV says that, and NASB will say something different, and then the message and passion translations will say something completely different. So how do we make sense of all this? And what is the the translation for you or yeah. for me and all the things so yeah. yeah so tune in on saturday be sure to share the show really the shares are so vital right now give it a thumbs up um the, we are our content is just being severely blocked by a lot of platforms right now so sharing the show helps us overcome those algorithms so we really need your help in sharing the show and um helping us to overcome that blocking that we are receiving right now. So we want to thank you for watching. We hope you're finding this helpful and good night. We'll see you next week. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening. Thank you.